You're about to listen to an all-new issue of Geek in the City Radio, which comes to you free every single week over on geekinthecity.com. If you enjoy helping us keep this show free, and I know you do, pop on over to patreon.com forward slash geekinthecity, where we have all kinds of levels that get you some fantastic awards and benefits. But if you can't help us out there, just please share this show over on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. And as always, our opening and closing theme brought to you by nerd rock group Megathruster. And now, let's get on with an all-new issue of Geek in the City Radio. One, two, three, four! It's been a long, long week. Why don't you spend some time with geeks? So many issues today into which we must delve. Talk about the stuff that makes you scream and shout. Hit the red alert, we're going more factor 12. Thanks for pressing play. Now we're gonna save the day. Alright! Hello and welcome to issue 547 of. Geek in the City Radio. I am still quarantined Aaron Duran. Uh, I am sitting on my couch being a Rita. I am straight out the airlock, Cable Hashitani. <laughs> Hello, everyone. And uh, normally we uh, we bring guests in later, but since he's here, let's welcome our guest this week, uh, Joe Streckert. How's it going, sir? Uh, it's going great. I, like you, I'm in my house. I think we all are. Yeah. You, everyone better be. Unless, you know, they have house. to go to their jobs. Right. And if you have to be at your jobs, why are you listening to the show right now? Actually, because, you listen. Because way to stick because it to the man. If you were on you, I know. I yeah. you. Go away. Um, <laughs> if you are still working your job, um, you need even more respite and something to distract you from the fact that you, regardless of what work you were doing before, if you're still working and going to work and helping customers, you have now just become a personal shopper, whether you realize it or not. Yeah. It's like and our that work is intense. My, my longtime friend and beans friend, everyone's friend, Aaron, AKA prime. Like he's, he's a frontline guy at Trader Joe's, uh, which is already a madhouse when there's yeah. not like a pandemic. Oh my God. So I've never, I like, I, I think it's like a few weeks ago. I thought like, well, maybe I should shop at that Trader Joe's to kind of support my friend. And I thought, you know what? The best way to support him is to not walk into that store right now. Be one less human he has to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then I, I... dropped off a bottle of gin at his front door. <laughs> <laughs> Although I did hear that, like, it sounds like Trader Joe's is one of the better organizations in terms of working harder to keep everyone safe. But like I guess the the is unspoken it? portion of that, uh, yeah, they are um, they are yeah. they limit how many people are in the store, and I think they're a little bit more stringent about p- making people follow the new rules that have been put into place. When I go to my neighborhood Safeway, most people aren't wearing a mask. Most people are going the wrong way up and down all of the aisles, touching yeah. produce and then putting it back. It's just it's pandemonium out there. No one just like wants to just. Follow some fucking rules. Well, here's the thing. Uh, That's granted, right. If you're touching, you bought maybe, it. 
Yeah. Trader Joe's may be working to do some things, but they were also on the list of businesses to boycott on May Day. Oh. Yeah, they tried to or they tried to unionize and their their German overlords fought it. Mm. I mean, yeah, the unspoken part about like, oh, they're all working harder to keep everyone safe. The unspoken part of that is everyone's doing more now. Everyone who is still working or about to go back to work is is being asked to do more. And in some cases, it's for less than they were making before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I like the plan to have the limited openings and people and like governments telling the restaurants, like you can open at 25% capacity. Like no restaurant can survive at 25% capacity. You're out of your mind. That's why if you're doing um, limited capacity, you still do to go orders and you still promote to go orders. When I would say that it's more logical to stick to just continue to do t- to go and take out. It is. Like it is more logical to do that. It is more logical to to take the approach that uh, the Western Coalition of States has been doing. <laughs> it's like we're the like it's that? like we're the Judean People's Front, <laughs> <laughs> or the People's Front. Of, I don't know which one we would be. One of them are wankers, though. I don't remember which one. I believe it's the Popular Front, who's just one guy. People's Front. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I haven't watched that in a while. Now I need to. Uh, but the, the, uh, I've lost the thread anyway. Um, it's crazy. People who work need entertainment. Yeah. More just now than ever. I was, I was thinking this was a few days ago. One of the greatest like rebukes I ever heard to anyone who thinks like this is a hoax or it's being blown out of proportion. This person on Twitter said, look, you want to know how this is real? Disney is still closed. And mm-hmm. no matter how much I love that company or whatever, they they're about to, making money. They exist to make money. They leave nothing on the table. And if they are still closed and losing thirteen million dollars a day, which they've confirmed they are, this shit is real. No matter what anyone else says, if Disney's shut, shit's real. You know? Yeah. <laughs> if Disney leaves money on the table, they've done it deliberately. Yep. <laughs> and you have to ask immediately why. Mm. So I know I'm not here to talk about Disneyland, but one I'll of do the, it. I'm not, not here to okay, talk about okay. Disneyland. <laughs> one of the one of the extremely minor ways that Who's this that? whole thing has affected my household. Uh, is that a haunted mansion hat you're wearing? Oh yeah, and there's haunted mansion stuff. Oh oh <laughs> met Aaron so one, <laughs> one of the very minor ways that this has affected my household is that um, it was uh, my spouse's birthday uh, last month. And it was a big birthday. It was a round number. And she wanted to like do a lot of stuff the entire month of April to like celebrate parties, karaoke, and let's kick it all off with a trip to Disneyland. So we planned one. We got the plane ticket. We booked a hotel. We had it coincide with like a food and wine festival that they have there in early April. Um, We had the thing where you can go like, back and forth between California Adventure and Disneyland. By the way, I've never been to Disneyland. I have never been to a theme park. Like, I've been to, like, Aww. Oaks Park, and that's about it. So, yeah, but... You so, mean that food and wine festival? Uh, yeah, I think so. Like, yeah. I was just saying, I've never been to Disneyland, never been to a theme park. I had no idea what to expect. Really excited. And then this all, this all like, happened. Like, Ugh. oh. 
instead of like the wild month of continuous like parties and karaoke and booze and food and starting with Disneyland, it's like, okay, cool. I guess it's um, Netflix, Netflix and uh, inexpensive Fred Meyer wine. Yeah. And, and make your own bread. Oh, plenty of that. <laughs> uh, I feel and you. I, one of the hardest I days. I follow you on social media. I see what you do. <laughs> I think for me, one of the hardest days since the shutdown uh, was implemented was the day I re- I was supposed to have been flying to Japan for my first international vacation. Oh. Like my first real big girl. I'm leaving for, the country for for not the government. For, for, not, not, for, not, for not war the first time you were leaving yeah, the country. Not, <laughs> not to visit my family, whom I love, but, you know, it's, it's the same country every time. You know, it it was a bummer. Yeah. Can't you have send you, a you been to uh, had you been to Japan before? Nope. Nope. Oh. I'd never left the country except for my deployments and to visit family in Mexico. <laughs> Should I not tell you that Japan is like absolutely lovely and you would have had a great time? No, she in knows because I've told her, my spouse has oh, told yeah, her, like other every, friends. Like, everyone has been to Japan, essentially, <laughs> except for me. So, yeah, that's kind of what, why I picked it because I'd already like heard so many great things and knew that it would be a wonderful trip. And we were going to go to uh, Tokyo Disney and uh, was it, was the other one Tokyo Sea Disney Sea Disney Sea yeah, which I've technically been to, but it was for a work thing, so I know it doesn't count. Doesn't count. Nope. No, yeah. Sense. And again, even though like I go all the time, at least I used to, I got super bummed because my sister and I have never taken like that sibling trip without any parents around. Like ever. And, you know, I'm 44, she's 35 or whatever. We've never had that trip. So for Christmas, I surprised her with, like, I went all in, like Disneyland Hotel, tickets, everything. And then one of the nights we're going to be there was this thing called Villains Night, where the park closes early and you're encouraged to dress up. And they let out all, they get all the people that act as the Disney villains wander the park and interact mm-hmm. with you and, Oh, we were so super jazzed and everything. And I was like, uh, I guess that's not happening now. Okay. So, and that was like four days ago. I should have, I should have been there. No. Uh, yeah. And I know it's a dumb thing to be bummed out about. Cause like shit's super scary right now. But part of me is like, it sucks. It does suck. I, yeah. Just because, you know, you're, we're all doing it for the best of reasons, not causing death. Uh, it doesn't make it any less of a bummer. Right. Someone is pissed off, Irma. Um, Probably mind you. At least both of you are in the same boat of you literally don't know what you're missing because you've never been. Whereas Aaron knows exactly what he's missing, which (laughs) makes him even more melancholy. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose. I had everything booked up. I like I bought a lightsaber so my sister could build her first lightsaber ever. Um, she's gonna do the whole thing, all the fancy stuff, and it's not there. Did they give you like a personality test to determine what type of kyber crystal you have? Uh, well, okay, I could be super nerdy if you'd like to know. <laughs> please, please do that. <laughs> okay, so first, once they reopen, make it the, make it the short version. You have okay. to, you have to, yeah, I will. You have to book ahead of time because it's really busy. The Savi's lightsaber thing. But once you check in, they lay out like these four cards and like mm-hmm. one is like, and they tell you, focus on what feels best for you. One is like nature, one is power and control, one is like peace and justice, and the other one is like uh, like balance or whatever. And whichever one you feel drawn to, 
that's will determine what kind of parts you build your saber out of. And they give you the special pin that you wear that you get to keep that forever. And then you build the saber, but then they come out and they talk about the kybers and you actually get to pick what kyber you want also. But they tell you that like red kybers were used by people like Emperor Palpatine and Kylo Ren and all that kind of stuff. Um, the, I think the first time I went when they were mentioning the rare purple kyber, my, my mom said, like Samuel L. Jackson. And since they can't break character, the woman working the thing went, I don't know of him, but I have heard of Master Windu before. Like they, like they, they sell it pretty well. That's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, it, uh, yeah, it gets it pretty well. And like that entire area, there's never Star Wars music. It's just ambient sounds hmm. until you finish building your saber. And then because they know they can make millennials and Gen Xers cry, uh, the John Williams music kicks in. And then you hear Frank Oz as Yoda, like the spirit of Yoda like welcoming new Jedi. I'm like, Oh God, I'm like bawling, looking at my friend and I'm like, well, it's only the culmination of everything we ever wanted. So we were eight years old. So of course we're crying right now. <laughs> uh, like it's embarrassing, but wonderful. <laughs> no, I get it. Yeah. I get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's adorable. Uh, speaking of which really quick has who here is caught up with clone wars. Is it just cable and I, I think so. All right, Cable, you and I are going to have to just talk later privately. Motherfuckers. <laughs> oh, that's right. This, this week was the series finale, huh? Yeah. This last season of Clone Wars might actually be the best writing Star Wars has ever had. Whoa. That's... I, like... I'm, <laughs> my hot take is Clone Wars is the best thing that Star Wars has ever produced. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty phenomenal. So, followed yeah. very closely by the Mandalorian. The Mandalorian is great. So. And Rebels, is. Rebels is tight. Yep, and then followed by Rebels. Basically, anything that Dave Filoni or um, uh, John Favreau, John Favreau, are involved in, it's is really good. Dave Filoni is involved in all three of those things. Yep. Well, they should just let him do the movies. It's almost surprising because I was kind of over it with John Favreau and, and his projects. Yeah, because what was his last up? He did like, well, he did The Lion King. Oh, did he? Which, yeah. yeah. <laughs> which wasn't He's bad. He's been doing just... weird projects. Like, his last project was, I mean, he was still like, at least executive producing a lot of the Marvel stuff. I think he was getting like EP credit on a lot of Marvel stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, without him, there probably wouldn't be an MCU. There wouldn't be. Yeah. Cause no, he not at all. He basically yeah. played Moneyball with uh, Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. Like straight up, because everyone forgets that Terrence Howard is the highest paid performer in that first Iron Man movie. Mm-hmm. Um, he basically, I found out, they had talked about it later, uh, the insurance companies charged Paramount, or whoever did Iron Man, I think it was Paramount, yeah. Charged them double the normal rates because they didn't trust Robert Downey Jr. They're like, he's going to relapse. He always relapses. And Favreau's like, he's not. He's going to take it for scale. He's not going to screw you guys. And uh, yeah, they, they, they made him pay more for insurance premiums and stuff. So, And then Iron Man happened. <laughs> right. Yeah. Joe's like, That's you guys a hell remember? of a gamble. No, no. I'm just thinking like... Um, like the new Lion King, I think he was kind of set up for failure. 
because it's a hard project to do since, you know, the singing, dancing animals thing is a problem we've solved with traditional animation. Like Mm -hmm. if you want to have a movie where like animals sing and dance and have feelings and have human facial expressions, we've been, we've been doing that for years and we've had projects like the lion King and the cats movie, which says, how can we do singing, dancing animals, but like make it look quote unquote realistic, which means make it look like shit. Yeah. It doesn't like like make it look creepy. And like, yeah, the jungle book, uh, which I have not seen was supposed to be pretty good, but The the jungle book is pretty good. But you have a human that one doesn't lead. look creepy. But you have a human lead there, right? Yeah, yeah. You've got Mogwai is a boy. Yeah, it's an it's 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 a human. Yeah, yes. which is um, pretty animals, impressive, considering that are... kid's only on a green screen the entire time, basically, and some props he gets to physically interact with. Yeah, like I don't see how you could have done a. Um, did you see the other uh, Netflix Jungle Book thing that had animals making realistic human expressions? I never did. Did you see it? uh, I I checked it out because I was curious. I didn't watch the whole thing because it's unwatchably bad. But it's creepy. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work if you have him like emoting like humans emote. And it doesn't uh, work if you have him just making animal faces because then they do nothing. Right. Yeah. So it's like, what what do you do? And I mean, the answer is like, just, just do a cartoon. Just do like cartoon cats. Yeah. I mean, it, that, Everyone kind of forgets that, like, when you see the animated version of a young Simba, you connect mm-hmm. with it because they get it, they give it anamorphic appearances so we can connect as a human. We see he doesn't look like he has a lion's eyes. He looks kind of like he has human's eyes. They're, you know, they're exaggerated. They're expressive. But when they just have a voice speaking through an incredibly well animated lion cub, right? it's just fucking weird. Mm-hmm. Um. Because visually, Lion King's amazing. It looks like the greatest nature documentary Disney has ever filmed. <laughs> Except then there's voices coming out, and that's dist- and it doesn't work like, at all. It's the uncanny valley, but for animals instead of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost, it's almost worse with people because there's no, there's no theater of the mind. Like, none of it's there. They, they look too good. Mm. So... Which is why I'm really worried about the uh, the remake of Robin Hood. Oh, that's right. Oh, they're gonna get treatment. Yeah. Uh, when I saw that, I really only could think of it. It really made me think of one thing. Let me pull it up for you. Sorry, vamp. Sorry, vamping. Well, when I when I saw the announcement, all I could think is that one person that tweeted immediately, like, "Unless we want to fuck him, it doesn't count." <laughs> <laughs> I think I think a whole bunch of us had that exact same thought mm-hmm. uh, when they made that announcement. Yeah, yeah. Because don't get me wrong, I love the idea of having an entire new generation that has their weird awakening of like, "Is that fox sexy?" Will it be? Is that is that a chicken I want to? Is that a chicken I want to stoop? No. Hold on. <laughs> I feel like that starts going down the um, the route of cats, though. That, yeah. That's... But how much of it is um, the animation versus also, like, the voice acting, the, the personalities that the characters are given? Right. Robin Hood the Fox is a very nuanced and alluring character. Don't leave me hanging. I just no. said that. Don't leave me. No, in. no, absolutely. He's got, 
he's like he's like a Han Solo who's a good cuddler. Right. Like he's roguish, uh-huh. but he, he he's caring. Like he's he's like uh, you know the the bad boy who's still there in the morning and is going right. to make you breakfast. Yeah. Their 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 animal uh, characteristics make them inherently uh, more. Uh, what's the word? Make you makes you feel like like they would receive and give affection. Right. Like he would do cat scent markings on you. Do do, do foxes do that? I don't, I don't, I don't do think that. so. I don't know. <laughs> um, but really, like, why mess with a good thing? Just just leave Robin Hood alone. Just leave Robin Hood alone. I don't know. I might watch it. It'll just depend on what the previews do for me. I mean, it also probably helped that the voice of Robin Hood was it <laughs> Sorry, Brian, Gable. Brian Bedford was also kind of like a classically trained Shakespearean actor that was well known for playing, you know, like rapscallion characters on stage. So that kind of attitude already just kind of came naturally to him. Mm. You know, so... That probably helped a lot also. Right. It's, and that's the thing is like with all of these uh, computer animated remakes, I, they're just trying to catch the lightning in a bottle again. I'm like, can't you just be satisfied with the fact that this was a well, this like this, this holds up, you know, people still love it. Right. Do something I, else. This goes back to the earlier comment of Disney doesn't leave money on the table. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, you're right. If, and they will make they money. Can go back to the same carcass and pick more off of it, they will. If the carcass is done, they will then throw the carcass into a pot of boiling water and make a broth out of it that mm. they will then distill down into other things for years to come. You know what, Cable? That that's, how you, that's how you make delicious ramen. I mean... Yep. But ramen is something else that's using some of the previous elements. It's it not... starts with that broth. <laughs> I mean, keep in mind that this is also the company that prior to remaking its movies was also making a ton of direct-to-video sequels of lots of really good movies. Oh, yeah. Like, um, there's like Little Mermaid 2, Return to the Ocean. There's like Beauty and the Beast, The Forgotten Christmas. There's like there's seven like... Aladdin sequels. <laughs> okay, first off, exactly okay. That. that Beauty and the Beast Christmas movie is actually pretty good because it takes place in the middle of the actual Beauty and the Beast movie. Fair enough. And the Aladdin, oh, like and the the, Aladdin in, in between the winter scenes. Uh-huh. The Aladdin Disney Afternoon cartoon was also good. Oh, that's right. The cartoon show. Yeah, and Aladdin 3 was good because Robin Williams came back. Because that was what? The Return of Jafar? Or was that the... Uh, I think I mean, Return a, a of thousand. Jafar was the second one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, remember, so it was a thousand. Then it was a what? The 40 Thieves? Yeah, I remember being really bad even as a kid, knowing that Robin Williams was not the genie. Uh, he was mad. He was interviewed. Yeah. They assumed he wouldn't do it. Aladdin and, and the uh, King of Thieves. Apparently yes. he would have. He's like, you guys didn't ask. I would have done it. I love this character. Uh, of course he would have done it. They wouldn't have paid him what he wanted to get paid for it. So apparently they didn't pay him much for the third one. He just would have done it. Oh, He weird. was more pissed that they didn't ask him. You know who they did bring back? Gilbert Godfrey. <laughs> doesn't he sing a song in I, I uh, Return of Jafar? He does. Yeah. <laughs> I feel that's less that they brought him back and more that they didn't get rid of him in the first place. Nah. Yeah. They went, is that Gilbert Godfrey? Yeah, he's just been here since Aladdin. We can't seem to, he's just like, <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure he's living in that broom closet. He goes down to the drinking fountain to take a bath, which is oh, really he, awkward to watch. He got, 
he got forgotten for a long time though because remember like a week after 9-11 he made a he made a 9-11 joke because he thought yeah. the country was ready to laugh that didn't go over well no. nope yeah he's gotten in trouble a few himself in trouble a few times with stuff yeah. like that he has a podcast Which, now what's funny of is that every, every, stand, every stand-up comic who will talk about him they will all say like dude had guts like i never because because all comedians are broken inside yeah so they all privately laughed at that joke he made a week later but then thought oh you're fucked <laughs> yep no they, they knew how to read the room he he doesn't care about reading the room right right it's not that he, he was the only asshole who was thinking certain things yeah. he's just the only idiot who didn't keep it to himself right like when even bob saget is like too soon then you know that things have gone horribly wrong. Yeah, that's true. And Bob Saget is filthy. It's absolutely fil- super inappropriate. Yeah. Like one of my favorite jokes of his that is even barely repeatable is like, it's like guys, look, look at me. I've, I've, I, I've got the body of a 13 year old and the brain of a German shepherd. They're at my car right now. If you want to come take a look. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that was one of the first jokes that I heard knowing <laughs> stand up after watching Full House and went, huh, Danny's yeah. got a mouth on him. His, seg- his fucking segment in The Aristocrats is just nigh unwatchable. Mm-hmm. It is so bad. It's so fucking bad. That is, that is a movie I have not thought about in an age and never did rewatch it after the first time. Yeah. That was nope. plenty. I've never seen it. Uh, I don't know if you need to. Um, I mean, I, I gen- well, now it's a little fuzzy, but I've, I've been told the, the key punchline, so. I the punchline punch is, it's not about and the we're called line. the aristocrats. It's, no, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's about right. the setup. Yeah. Right, right. And, I, and I've, I've, I've had a talk through of it, so, um, yeah, I'm like, I don't, I, maybe that's why I never did get around to it. I think you have to be a really big nerd of stand-up comedy to want to watch the aristocrats. Because mm-hmm. that's, it, that's all that's at its core. That's what it's about. Yeah. It's, it's a study of how stand-up comics interact with each other. I used to enjoy stand-up comedy more. I don't know. I'm coming back around. Yeah. Hard, it's just hard to find uh, comedians I like, I think. Yeah. And it's it can be expensive to spend the time going to clubs to find the comedy that you like. Right. Which comedy clubs know this, which is why they give away so many free tickets to get people in there to buy $17 7-Ups and $32 steaks. Oh, yes. I've been to Helium. (laughs) I had a period of my time, uh, a period of my life about maybe, God, at this point, over 10 years ago, where I was actually attempting to do stand-up comedy in Portland. And um, I was okay at it. Um, God, I had a, uh, I had a routine about Mary and Joseph having a threesome with God and you know what? Okay. It did All pretty right. well. Like, you, can just, you can picture, uh, you can picture how that would go. It did pretty well, but, um, I, I just couldn't stay with it because so much of it was like therapeutic on the part of the people on stage. And it's not that you don't feel for them, but it's just like, I have a hard time being present for everybody else's pain 
and also seeing like poor like a poor reception to other people's pain on a regular basis um it was kind of like a hard hobby to have and then i wandered away and did something else yeah man that's well that's a good segue because speaking of other things you started doing (laughs) okay you've written a book yes i have And that's the perfect transition to have a quick little shout out for our sponsors. Uh, First up would be Guardian Games 345 Southeast Taylor Street in Portland, Oregon. Not that you can go inside and shop right now. You can, however, uh, email uh, Guardian Games. Go to ggportland.com and click on the contact or go to facebook.com forward slash Guardian Games and find a way to contact the folks that are working there and ask if they have whatever board game or role playing game or you know, painting materials, model making stuff, whatever you're looking for that you know that Guardian Games carries, if they still have that in stock, they will get back to you with the price. And if you want it, they will uh, they will call you up and take your credit card information over the phone. And within a few hours, you can drive by and have a contact-free pickup. They clean everything before they hand it out to you. They make the transaction as safe as possible. So while you are locked in your home, you can have some fine gaming or miniature painting entertainment to help you pass the time. Another way you can help pass the time is go to our friends at Bridge City Comics, bridgecitycomics.com. You know, Diamond just announced in a few weeks they'll be shipping new books again. So some new titles are going to start coming back out. That also means that hopefully we'll be able to start reviewing some comics again because there's no point in reviewing stuff that is not out there. But we will start reviewing books again and making recommendations and you can get that added to your subscription box at Bridge City Comics. Uh, Same thing, they will take your information over the phone or via their online shopping form and then it is contact-free pickup at Bridge City Comics. If you don't feel safe doing that, they do have a shipping program there. They can also ship comics to your place where you live, and that way you can never miss out on your favorite stories once they come back, because right now uh, we need stories. We need good entertainment and uh, excitement and uh, you know some entertaining stimulation in, in, these, in these strange times. And uh, as always, a special shout-out to RevNats for hooking us up with some good equipment so we can have better sounding shows while we're all zooming in to record Geek in the City Radio. You can go to uh, RevNats.com and have some cider or some hard seltzer or some beer from Old Town Brewing uh, delivered right to your door many times same day if you order early enough. And while they're not hanging around us a whole lot right now, um, special shout out to Asylum. Find them on Facebook, PDX, Facebook forward slash pdxasylum.com. And uh, check out, they still have some new items coming in. And if you contact them, they will find out for, they will they will find a way to get the product to you. So a uh, special shout out to Anton and Deb there also. And with all that yammering on, let's get back to this all new issue of Geek in the City Radio. Uh, I did do that. We also, should, I feel like we should have people, uh, you should probably tell folks what you've actually done here in Portland. <sighs> okay. So uh, actually, that'll, that'll, um, That'll segue into it this nicely because one of the other reasons why I had a hard time doing stand-up comedy like 10 years ago is that my day job, I was a tour guide. So my day job was yelling at tourists about Portland and Portland stuff. Um, It was actually a really rewarding thing to do. Um, I got to learn a lot about the city and a lot about history and architecture. And this was like kind of in this time that Portland was getting a lot of attention. Like 
2000, like 2009, 2010, 2011 was when a lot of people were going like, oh my God, Portland, it exists, which if we're from here, we have known that the entire time. But uh, suddenly there's this like barrage of New York Times articles and a certain TV show that started existing and all that. So uh, yeah, being a Portland tour guide was kind of in demand. Um, Also at that same time, I was uh, making a go of being a freelance journalist. Um, I wrote for a whole bunch of outlets before that, but my first big gig in Portland was for the Daily Journal of Commerce, which you might have seen in boxes around around town. It is the um, newspaper that's ostensibly about architecture, but only exists because there are certain types of uh, things that uh, organizations legally have to announce in a like circulation of general interest, and uh, they had the cheapest rates for announcing those things. So they they exist basically because like an organ statute demands that print ads also exist. Um, but after I got laid off from there, um, I started freelancing for the Portland Mercury, which was great. And um, I have written for the Portland Mercury for like, oh my God, going on 10 years now, uh, <laughs> off and on. Um, What's funny is that prior to that, I was having a byline here and a byline there. And I was so surprised that the alt weekly that puts on a porn fest was the most like professional, punctual and put together outfit that I have ever written for. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a bit of everything for them, but a lot of what I wrote about for the Mercury was about Portland history. So in every issue, there's, you know, your restaurant reviews and you know, comics in the back and movie reviews and concert stuff. And also there's the, you know, between 1500 to 3000 word feature about something. Um, I, at the time, uh, having written for a DJC and being a Portland tour guide was getting really, really into local history. So Steve Humphrey, the editor in chief was like, yeah, go for it. You want to write about Portland history? Sure. Sounds good. Yeah. We can get some clicks off of that. And uh, was really receptive about it. So I think my first ever feature I did for them was about like... Hello. Uh, (laughs) Sorry, there was some echo there. My first ever feature for them was about like famous organ explosions, like the whale and... um, (laughs) Yeah, and like talking about... Yeah, Mount Mazama blowing up and a bunch of other stuff. But... uh, did a whole bunch of other features about things like Vanport, a city that used to exist in Portland in the 1940s mm-hmm. and <laughs> is no longer a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> we call um, it Jansen Beach. For, <clears throat> right. for totally nice reasons. Yeah. Um, I, did a, I did a piece that I got really into about East Portland, about why Portland east of 82nd has this kind of distinct feel to it and what it was like as unincorporated county land and how it did did not have the like infrastructure that a lot of stuff uh, west of that has. Um, I did a thing about um, Portland's grid, like how the streets got how they are. Um, also when like Portland rent prices were like going through the roof, it's mm-hmm. like, hey, here's a whole bunch of stuff about policies in the 70s that made it so... <laughs> property is really expensive now and why our rents are all like going through the roof. Yeah. Like contextualizing why everybody was like, you know, just angry that, um, 
you know, their the house that they had lived in had gone from had gone from this thing where it's like, oh yeah, here's this like rundown punk house where you can pay three hundred dollars a month to now living here in this bedroom is like a grand a month. Yeah, in the space of a couple of years at the time, but yeah, it was great. So I'm taking way too long to answer this question. Um, <laughs> Have you heard this show? That's all we do. Take as long as I you know. want. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. So, anyways, uh, I did a tour guide thing for about seven years as my main gig, and during that time, um, I researched tours. I helped hire tour guides, trained tour guides, um, wrote new stuff for other tour guides. Uh, tour guides to say. Um, also, I would uh, follow them around on their tours and like <laughs> QA them, which always felt weird because we would hire a lot of, we we tended to hire a lot of like actors and stand up comedians actually cuz they were comfortable in front of crowds then we'd have to go around and say like okay i know that like the way that you the way that you said it was a good story but like you also have to represent things accurately there was always a tension between like making the stories good and making things accurate um and at the same time running with uh, the mercury on the side about a year and a half ago, I got an offer to write a book. And what's funny is that there's this publishing house that was called Globe Pequot that does local interest books. So imagine you're at a museum or an airport gift shop in, say, Minneapolis or something. And you'll probably see a book like you know, gangsters of Minneapolis or like scandalous Minneapolis or something like that. Uh, they do that. Those like impulse by those impulse by local interest books that you can like buy. haunted Chicago. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that kind of thing. So they emailed me out of the blue and it's funny at first I thought it was a scam. <laughs> I was like, what? No, you're asking me to write a book. Like, this isn't, this isn't a real thing. This is, I'm going to delete this email. Uh, which is funny because like people who've been like writing and freelancing for a long time, the idea of an offer just sort of like showing up in your inbox out of nowhere, completely unsolicited. That's a dream. Like that's what people <laughs> or want. Or it's a scam. Right, right. Yeah, and right. so you see it and I'm like, this is not real. Um, and then I found out that they had actually gone to um, one of my colleagues first. Um, <laughs> oh. No, he's great. He's great. He's a guy called Doug Kank Crispin. Uh, he oh. does the podcast Kick-Ass Organ History. And they'd found him. And he, they're like, do you want to write this book for us? And he's like, I can't. I have a bunch of other pro- projects, but I know who should. This guy called Joe. And so he comes to me. He's like, hey, did, uh, did that publisher get a hold of you? And I'm like, yeah, like, what's up with that? Is that a pyramid scheme or something? It's like, <laughs> dude, they want you to write a book. Say yes. So it is a real, it is a real publisher. They also publish like Falcon Guides, um, which are like guidebooks, like trails and hiking for hiking, hiking and biking and that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, a little over a year later, uh, it exists. Um, and it is a book that is, I like to say the bad stuff, but not the actual bad stuff. So, like the, like the fun bad stuff, not the yeah, the fun <laughs> things. Well, uh, we've got a, we've already got a couple questions for you from okay. listeners. 
Cool. Yeah, um, I've been just sort of like aimlessly rambling. So, yeah, let's let's see. So from um, let's see from Kevin, he said, "What's the funniest historical death in Portland you're aware of?" So, one of the mayors in Portland, Oregon, was riding in a stagecoach, and oh, at the time, um, you had telephone lines that had been recently strung, like across the street. Um, these were a relatively new thing. And his, no, it was not a stagecoach. It was like an open air coach. And he ended up getting hit in the head by one of these lines that went across the street um, and flew and he like got flung out of the back of it, uh, lingered a few days and then died of his injuries. Uh, I don't know I should, if that's a funny death. I feel bad for laughing. At, <laughs> well, the guy who asked it, Kevin is laughing his ass off in the window right now. So he approved. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like, hey, we got this new technology. Uh, it killed the mayor. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, our friend uh, Norman, Texas, is uh, what's your favorite neighborhood in Portland? That's a tough you gotta, one. You got to tread carefully here now. I you, make, tre- you may anger people. So I know that South Portland is new, but I am, I am proud to say that prior to this, I have lived in all five of Portland's quadrants. And yeah, oh, wow. uh, and so I have direct experience with all of them. Uh, they're all great. Um, but here's how I'm going to answer this. What? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to say that one of the quadrants is really, really big. And so it's more likely that the person who's asking this question is from there. So I'm No, he's from say, Texas. Oh my God. See? <laughs> Okay. And he's staring intently at the screen <laughs> waiting for your answer. <laughs> I, um, I live in Kenton, up in North Portland. Kenton is great. But given, given, yeah, and uh, I love it. We have a statue of Paul Bunyan. It's, it's amazing. Uh, Southeast Portland is lovely. Southeast Portland is great. They have um, all sorts of really good stuff like Belmont and Hawthorne and Lone Fir Cemetery, Portland's like big creepy pioneer cemetery. Yeah. Uh, they have Lad's Edition, which includes the mm. second largest rose, rose garden in Portland, Oregon. No, excuse me. Third largest rose garden in Portland, Oregon. Um, Designed to look like yeah. Washington, D.C., which is really weird. Yeah, and it's like, it's a totally non-functional, impractical neighborhood, but I also kind oh. of love it for that reason. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it looks cool on the map. It does look cool on the map. Yep. Oh, God. God. The thing is, though, is that so much of this book takes place in what we now call Old Town. So I feel like I also have to say Old Town. But, like, I worked in Old Town for a while, so... Cable's yeah. holding it down for the OT. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot to offer. I kind of like this. I kind of like the Slab Town area. Yeah, like the weird buffer between Pearl and Old Town. Before uh, Aaron, before you and I were neighbors, I had been looking at you know places to stay, and I almost ended up in Kenton rather than Southeast. Oh man, what would have happened? Would have been totally different life. Yeah. Hmm. You may not be married. <laughs> I mean, we already knew each other, so 
we might have still become friends. I mean, we probably would have become friends, but I don't think we, we may we may not have had that summer of really intense hangouts when neither of us had jobs. <laughs> yeah. And then like I just had to like drunk drunkenly bike the two blocks home. <laughs> right. <clears throat> uh, somebody asked, uh, what was your fave funny story about Portland history? Oh god, I that's also another tough one. I mean, don't give it all away. Make people buy the book, man. Yeah. Oh, oh I, I think it's like, <laughs> I, feel, I feel like this should, we should build to that one. Right. Yeah, oh. yeah. Let's, let's come back to that one. Uh, so, okay. Here's one I want to hear the answer to for sure. Uh, if you could rename a street uh, in, Orla- in Portland to honor someone from its past, uh, or maybe like a park or what have you, who would you name it for? Um, I... The person that comes immediately to mind is Harry Lane. And Harry Lane is, he was a mayor of Portland and he was not super successful as mayor. He was mayor in the early 20th century. And at the time in early 20th century Portland, the city was basically run by oligarchs. Um, You had business owners who were these basically rich dudes who all kind of knew each other, all hung out, um, made city regulations, not for them to follow, but for, but to manage others, uh, which is funny because a lot of them owned a uh, vice institution. So uh, <laughs> they were the like brothel owners and casino owners and uh, all of that. Um, and Harry Lane was, so when they were making, uh, yeah, that guy right there. <clears throat> um, it's pretty suave looking. He yeah, kind of so, looks like Jeremy Isaacs. He kind of does. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> so one of the things I, I talk about in the book is that um, when you had uh, regulations about vice, which is a big part of what the book is about, um, they were not there to actually regulate, say, gambling or the like. They were there to keep up appearances, and they were also there so you could have something to, um, you know, throw at other populations hypothetically what like, yeah. Like me. Yeah, yeah i would i would refer to it as like selective law enforcement very much so um in portland you always had this attitude that you could have gambling or sex work and it was always fine if it was in the right area even though it was all technically illegal and that right area was the north end which we would now call old town mm-hmm. and when you did want to enforce it uh you would you would bring in the cops and you would bring them down on, say, Chinese-owned businesses. So if you ever wanted an excuse to, like, have cops go in and do a bunch of, like, egregious shit to Asian-Americans, hey, you had a statute on the books for that. But God forbid that you ever break up gambling games at, uh, you know, any of the bars that were owned by the rich guys who control the city. Anyway, Harry Lane was elected mayor of Portland very much in reaction to a lot of that. Um, in the early 20th century, we got a lot of what is now called progressivism. Uh, progressivism is complicated because at first glance, it kind of looks like modern progressivism. They were in a lot of ways uh, opposed to the prevailing power structure. They were opposed to like the, you know, clubby rich guys who owned all the shit and, you know, were sort of running the city in this kind of casual, corrupt way. Um, they were also very often into like eugenics and kind of yeah, racist. Yeah. They yeah. Were into eugenics. 
Yeah, that was like a big thing about them as well. Um, and sterilizing those that were not going to help. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they also tended to be um, teetotalers. Mm-hmm. So in Portland, Oregon, so the biggest moneyed entrenched interest were um, saloons and alcohol manufacturers and alcohol distributors. Oh, and how you, so much has changed. Right, but if you were going to be opposed to the powers that be, that also meant that you were opposed to alcohol, which is a complicated, um, complicated like thing for, I think, us to look at now um, because I'm drinking a Negroni and it is lovely. And uh, I'm drinking from my local cider house. So Hey, yeah. uh, I've got some delivery from them as well. They're great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a friend, uh, a friend of the show, uh, and friend of everybody, really. In a way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, no, I say Merrick, Merrick Monroe. She, oh. uh, she called uh, Reverend Nats the unofficial, uh, the, the official unofficial drink of uh, of the coronavirus, at least here <laughs> in right. Portland. And I was like, I was mad that I didn't think of that first. Uh, I mean, I've gotten multiple deliveries from them to my house at this I point. I need so someone yes. who now oh, yes. needs to draw him as like the patron saint of Portland's quarantine. Like do the full yeah. on. Oh, yeah. Which is funny because he calls himself Reverend Nat, although he is a, he, like he is a dedicated atheist. <laughs> so that would I work mean, on so many levels. Yes, I mean, yes. like I am also technically a reverend, so. So am I. Yeah. Yay. We've talked about this before. I think we have, yeah. Oh, yeah. no, I feel left out. <laughs> oh, well, you know you what? You can, can, you can go online and do it right now. Yeah. yeah. Now, yeah. There would be no need of it at this point. Yeah. Uh, Harry Lane, though, <laughs> <answered> <laughs> yes. this question. Um, he was um, not successful as mayor in pushing back against a lot of the entrenched, moneyed private interests in Portland. But um, I think he made kind of a good go of it. Uh, he was also a really early advocate of public health. Um, he was a doctor at, I believe at then at that point it was still called Hawthorne Sanitarium, which would become the Oregon State Hospital. And he was one of the like early people who called out a lot of the um, unsanitary conditions in mental health, uh, mental health facilities at the time. And because of his advocacy for underserved populations, he was known as the poor people's doctor, which cool nickname. Um, he ended up becoming a U.S. senator from Oregon, and in the Senate, he had uh, a few big things that um, distinguished him. Um, he was first known for being like very frugal, which I guess we would now associate with like more conservative people, but he was more like just really opposed to waste and horse trading and the rest of it. Um, he was one of the few senators that voted against World War I. And he was also a big advocate for Native American rights. Um, so, yeah, I would say that the guy who uh, won an election, even though a bunch of, you know, po- entrenched rich guys didn't want him to, um, and later on went to the U.S. Senate and voted against a completely useless war, uh, yeah, he'd be a good candidate. Um, I I guess I should also mention Marie Equi, who was... <laughs> A um, another progressive, actually, uh, an early doctor who, among other things, um, helped. God, I know that there are other people who could talk about her better than I could, uh, but among other things, she helped publicize information about birth control and abortion uh, before that was 
uh, legal or even like not taboo. So we would pr we would not have you know our modern understanding of like any of that without people like her. Yeah, and I uh, think she went to the Oregon University of Oregon too. Yeah, at one point she also stabbed a dude with her hat pin. Hell yeah. Yeah, she had you like a big that guy had it coming. And yeah, he was a cop and she like had a big long hat pin and she just stabbed him right in the meat of his leg with it. Um and God, I wish I should I feel like I should have like looked at a whole bunch of my notes before being on this podcast, but I believe she was also in what was then called a Boston marriage. Which was um, I have it right here if you want to look at it. Yeah, she was one of the first like openly <laughs> yeah. gay people in the country, yeah. and like they even adopted a kid, I think. Yeah. Uh, so I'd say Harry Equi or uh, or Harry Lane or Marie Equi, uh, if I wanted to name a street after someone. Nice. Yeah. Not, oh. not Dorothy Lane. Oh my god. Not not Dorothy Lane. What was her name, Dorothy? Well, there was there was uh, Dorothy McCullough Lee, who is Portland's first female mayor. Lee, gotcha. Yeah. Uh, or or Lola Baldwin. Lola Not, Baldwin, that's the one I was Lola thinking. Lola Baldwin, she was ah, <laughs> uh, she's That was more of a joke. Uh I start I like I started re really liking her in her the first chapter first paragraphs of of her part in your book, but mm -hmm. by the end I was like, "No, why? You she were do you were doing so well." I mean, I think that's I think that's a tragedy of like all the progressives though. Mm -hmm. Like so many of them from that time period, you're like, cool, you're like a proto-feminist and you believe in equality and, and like, oh, oh and this other stuff. Oh, you're still racist. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, almost for, always that. Yeah, it, for, it sounds very much like the more things change in Portland, the more they have stayed the same. Hmm. I, I definitely thought that more than once during my read-through. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Okay, well, I want to ask you, like, you Not said... Not Alice, uh, I always liked, a, what is it, Alice Oberly? Alice Oberly, I, I'll confess, I'm unfamiliar with her. Enlighten so, me. Alice Oberly, I learned about her when I ver took the very first tour, the dearly departed tour at Lone First Cemetery they used to do every Halloween season. That's a great tour. That's an amazing tour, especially when they have the actors that come out in character. Mm -hmm. uh, if I remember correctly, she was no... I'm trying to remember here. Um, she was known as Portland's first uh, original fancy lady. Uh, <laughs> she was a well-respected prostitute that also owned many brothels. It was estimated at her time of death that she had over 4,000 clients in her life at one time or another. She was apparently so popular that when she died, local businessmen erected, there's a huge tomb for her in Lone Fur Cemetery oh. that was paid for by her clients. But as the story goes, and I don't know how true it is, and like Joe could do the research on this actually, um, <laughs> her sister was incredibly conservative and religious and was disgusted by her and chipped away at her tombstone, like actually chiseled away Aww. her name on it and had to get re it had to get repaired later on. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. It must have been so hard to be a woman back then. Oh, because it's super easy now? It's easier than it's easier than it used to be. That's fair, like fair. your biggest advocates in an in an entire out of an entire population are this one woman who's like sex trafficking is bad, and I'm going to protect all the young women. Oh, but also don't talk to those colored people. Uh, don't <laughs> don't have this job because you might you you might become involved in interracial relationships. Yeah, it's like when you hear about like the early American abolitionists, and you're like, oh man, good on them. Like, look at them wanting to fight against slavery and oppression. And then you read more of it, like. 
They still well, want you, segregation, and they still you think you're black less. people too. You just didn't want them in the country. That's why yeah. you're an abolitionist. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, that's where Liberia comes from. I know. I know. Yeah. No. Yeah. Humans rule. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not just segregated, but like with an ocean. Right. <laughs> Let's. Yeah. Uh, um. Oh. Um. Earlier, Sack was asking about the uh, the houseboat brothel. Oh my God. I, okay. I so I love the now, houseboat but... broth. I love the houseboat boat brothel story. Um, this is a story that I, I used to tell on tours, and I am so out of practice at talking about this now. But the story goes is that there was a woman called Nancy Boggs who had an establishment on the Willamette River that was known as Nancy Boggs's Floating Palace of Sin, and it was. <laughs> oh my God! I want to go there now. <laughs> I know. Well, it was supposedly painted. <laughs> Bright red and bright green, like it was Christmas. And I guess every day was Christmas and Nancy Boggs' floating palace of sin. And the thing is, is that she didn't want to pay off the cops. So when the cops showed up to get their cut, she would go from Portland over to East Portland, which until the 1890s Mm -hmm. was a different city. When the East Portland cops came to take their cut, she would float back and forth. and, And so on and so forth. And eventually... The Portland cops and the East Portland cops, the story goes, got together and decided we're going to raid her at the same time. (laughs) We're going to come from either direction. Um, And Nancy Boggs is in the middle of the Willamette River. And she and her girls are on the floating palace of sin. There are cop boats surrounding them. They attach a hose to the hot water heater of the houseboat hose down to cops with hot water uh cops are pissed off they cut the mooring lines on the houseboat it flows north up to willamette into the columbia and they get really lucky and land on a sandbar nancy boggs she knows people she knows a tugboat captain she gets him to tug them back to where they are the next morning uh he probably had a great night and <laughs> They're back in business the next day, supposedly. That's the story. It's a really good story. Want me to ruin it for you now? I mean, sure, but I already know that I want this to be like a Coen Brothers movie, whether it's true or not. I mean, okay, the story is great. The story is really good. Um, Here's the thing. Nancy Boggs, real person. Um, That is something I feel pretty confident saying. Um, But the first instance we have of that story is in the writings of a guy called Stuart Holbrook, who was a writer for the Oregonian in the early part of 20th century. Stuart Holbrook was an amazing writer. Um, He, I think, was very much aware that he was a teller of tales, more so than being a reporter of facts. And when you read a lot of his old Oregonian columns, a lot of them are... Uh, a lot of them have this kind of like winking, nudging sort of tone to them. Like he'll say things like, at least that's how the old timers tell it, you know, which has this sort of plausible deniability sort of, uh, you know, thing to it. He talks a lot in his columns about uh, going to the old <laughs> saloons and like interviewing like old bouncers about the 1870s and that type of stuff. So you get the idea of this like, writer for the Oregonian going to this old timey logger saloon that's kind of gone to seed and buying beers for geriatric bouncers and saying, Hey, tell me about what it was like 40 years ago, 50 years ago. 
and then kind of spinning that into a column that would take up maybe 500 to a thousand words. Our first instance, all I could not find any, um, any mentions of Nancy Boggs's floating palace of sin prior to anything by Stuart Holbrook in the 1930s. I did find mentions of Nancy Boggs herself and in the Oregonian, she is mentioned as the owner of a body house on Pine. So it's like, oh, okay. We actually have a few instances of a Nancy Boggs as a brothel owner, um, mm-hmm. but no contemporary, um, no contemporary reporting, uh, no police records, uh, nothing in the Oregon, Oregonian or in like any of the other publications at the time. Like we used to have the Oregon Journal, which was a big deal for a while. Like if that happened, like some reporter would have been making hay out of it. Yeah. Like, and so the fact that none of the publications in Portland at the time reported on it in the 1890s, I'm real suspicious. And I think Stuart Holbrook kind of invented the story, Mm. but it's a great story. That's such Um, a good story though. I mean, here's what I can tell you. Uh, Portland and East Portland did used to be different cities. Mm -hmm. Also in Portland, Oregon, people did have sex for money. Like we know that, <laughs> but uh, the fl- the floating brothel thing. Um, oh, actually, I can also add to that. We do know that actually there were a lot of structures on the Willamette River for a long time. Um, if you look at photos of the Willamette River prior to 1928, on the west side it is filled with industry. Uh, there were so many things that were all about uh, merchant fleets, and nowadays that's up on like more the east side of the river up towards the kind of Swan Island area. But nowadays, but back then it would have been in what we now consider downtown or Northwest. Um, On the east side of the river, there was this whole structure that was called, that was kind of collectively referred to as a scow town. And you had a lot of like old boats and improvised structures where people did live. Um, Imagine, um, imagine like a modern tent city, but basically floating on the water. Um, and they were basically there as a way of avoiding rent and property taxes. It was a cheap place to live. Um, whether or not anybody had any like nefarious brothels, I mean, probably. <laughs> right. <laughs> like you probably could have gone to uh, to like any of the floating structures on the Willamette um, that used to be pretty common uh, and probably paid money for all manner of goods and services. Uh, But that ended up getting uh, basically cleared out in 1928 when the waterfront, as we know, it was built and the seawall that we have now was installed. Yeah. So yeah, I I love the floating brothel story. That's great. And I, I uh, admire Stuart Holbrook for being able to write something that has resonated with people. (laughs) Like basically like basically almost a hundred years later, Uh, and where we remember his story, but we don't remember his name. Right. But yeah. Well, and speaking of things that are really good stories and not actually true, if you're still good with going down this path. Oh my God, let's go down this path. So I have known this fact for Mm -hmm. about 17, 18 years now. When I first learned this fact, it, I honestly, it really made me mad because I wanted it to be true so badly. Oh, and I will still tell, and I will still about. tell, and I will still tell people it's true just for the story, but that basically the Shanghai tunnels are bullshit. 
It also made me mad. <laughs> like, like I think we're all there. Like, I, I remember also feeling that feeling. Okay. Shanghai was real. Yeah. It like, was. Like, in, in a lot of cities, not just Portland. I mean, yeah, so... If you had a port uh, city. Yeah, so the, the thing that we can tell people is like, oh, don't worry, people were like... Uh, taken horrible advantage of and kidnapped and put on boats and made to, you know, do labor and do lifestyles that they had never actually like really agreed to. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Don't worry. People's human rights are egregiously abused. That's cool. Don't um, worry. Humans have been enslaving other humans forever. That's true. Yeah. I mean, I'm always like reticent to use the term slavery because I don't want people to compare it to like American chattel slavery. Right. Yeah. But like, right. yeah, it's not, not slavery. <laughs> Okay. It is a form of slavery. It is usually not what we mean when we say capital S slavery in the States. Right, right, right. right. Um, yeah, Portland, um, I mean, Portland uh, was a port city. Um, basically, like the early industries in Portland were agriculture, timber, and the fur trade. It was all extractive resource industries. And, of course, if you have a bunch of extractive resource industries you're going to like put it on boats and get it out of here. So that was huge. And there was also a big demand for labor um, on pre-industrial, on pre-industrial boats that people just didn't want to do for all kinds of reasons. Um, one was just hard, uh, but also uh, sailors just didn't have that great of a, you know, social position. You know, imagine being a sailor in the 1800s. And you're not like the captain or an officer or anything. You're just like a guy. You don't know where you're going. You don't have any say in the matter. Um, you don't own stock in the company that you're boating stuff around with. And you get a job done and you're somewhere where you don't speak the language. You don't know anyone. You don't really have any friends or family or yeah. anything. And people think you're this like, you know, weird foreign guy with threatening tattoos like people don't want to do that so there's a, there's a whole write-up about like how the east india trading company completely altered how shipping is still impacted to this day and like how how sailors were treated and everything like that that before it wasn't great but mm -hmm. you could make an okay living it was hard work and then the east india trade company changed fucking everything also committed mass genocide on the other side of the world <laughs> and started like four Perfect. wars yeah. Um, but yeah, so like, you don't want, people didn't want to do this. So like, oh, there's this like difficult job people don't want to do. Cool. Well, we could pay people a lot of money, but that's hard. So uh, instead you manipulate them. Um, and Shanghai was also known as crimping. There's a subtle difference between, the, uh, between those terms. So if you're in a place like Portland, Oregon, or San Francisco, or Tacoma, Washington, was also, which was also a big Shanghai city, mm. you could, uh, you'd have a lot of people show up here and they wouldn't necessarily have jobs. And one of the things that you could do is that you could stay at lots of places on credit. You could go in and you could sleep there. You could have a meal. You could have a, have a drink. You could you know, spend some time with another human being. And it would all be drawn against future wages you might earn. Um, now, in some places, it was understood that that job was going to be on a boat. 
And in some places they said, oh, you'll find a job. We know that you're good for it. But ultimately, uh, time would come that you had to pay your bill. And that was where you would be told to get on a boat. Um, all the stuff that you had, all the, the tab that you had accrued is drawn against the wages you're about to earn on that boat. And then you are out on the ocean for who knows how long working off of your old hotel tab. Now, one of the things that made this um, an even harder system was that oftentimes, or not oftentimes, sailors weren't paid until they completed their contracts. So if you deserted, you got nothing. Which means that if you are a captain or an officer on the ship, if people desert, that's money in the bank. Like that, you have an incentive to like have them just go away. So you have no incentive to like retain labor, make things like the good for people, like, you know, uh, have people have a, have a staff that has like company loyalty or anything like that. Um, if people jump ship first set of a port city like Portland and then just like go and spend time in another place where they can stay on credit, that's great. And so a lot of, a lot of ships and captains and boarding houses would have an arrangement where the ships and the captains would pay a certain amount to the boarding houses and be able to get crew cheaply and the boarding houses would be able to sell things quote unquote at a super marked up price to these guys so that they would always be in hock and always be in debt. And the actual sailors were in this position where they were never actually making money. They were just going from one impossible debt to another and never actually getting out of it, never getting paid for real. And they're just kind of trapped in that system going from port to port to port. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 So it was this. Thankfully like, that doesn't happen at all now that right. it's institutionalized. <laughs> yeah. Like, like <laughs> using, using labor and debt to trap people in shitty positions. It's not something that happens anymore. Don't forget no. about um, payday loans. Oh my God. Um, but yeah, it was kind of like um, a America lot of, rules. yeah, a lot of crimp houses um, were kind of like payday loan places or loan sharks. Um, and people are always really, I think, really depressed to find that out. That it's like, oh, man. Um, yeah, it wasn't the system where you're like, you had a bunch of traps and everything or hit guys on the back of the head and you know, right. trapped them in these dungeons. It was like a payday loan scheme. It's like, yeah. What about the trap doors and the secret entrances and the tunnel? That's not fun. That's not sexy anymore. Now it's depressing. It's like real life. <laughs> so here's, here's what I can tell you, though. <laughs> Uh, we also know, though, that a lot of a lot of uh, Shanghaiers, and the word was also crimp, like to crimp somebody, and a crimp was also the person who furnished labor to um, shipping companies, um, were less than scrupulous. We do know that what? some of them. Uh, we do know that I know, right? Some of them <laughs> didn't even go so far as getting people to rack up debt. Um, they would just rough guys up and deliver them to captains on the shore. Um, there was one guy called Jim Turk who had a boarding house in Portland called the Portland hotel, uh, which I think is funny because the Portland hotel was also this big posh place in what we now call downtown. 
And Jim Turk was, he was like, he was a thug. And he was known for being, and he was like a thug with money. But he was known for also being his own bruiser. Uh, basically just like beating the crap out of guys, taking him down to the waterfront and saying, oh, this guy has been staying at my place. Here's his bill. Whether or not that was true, who knows? And then mm. he would collect a fee and the guy would be in debt and working off a debt that he may or may not have actually accrued. But Jim Turk got paid. Uh, that shipping company got really cheap labor. Uh, the guy who got on the boat got totally screwed. So uh, two thirds of the people in this equation win. <laughs> I mean, at least he got his. I mean, you gotta respect the person who does his own dirty work. Yes. By the way, he's bu- he's buried in loan for a cemetery. Oh, where at? I spent a lot of time there. God, um, I believe he is in the... I've been to his grave. Um, I believe he is in the, like, southwest section of it. But not so, not where the asylum and the Chinese laborers were all mass buried. Yeah, so there's that, like, big clear section. Yeah. He's not in that part. He's, like, just outside of that part. And he's not Jim Turk. He's James Turk. Um, okay. He is also specifically called out as being a father, which I think is funny because he might have crimped his son. Okay, I do know this guy because oh, he yeah, was yeah. a during one of the Dearly Departed tours. Mm. Uh, yeah, they okay. had the the actor didn't play him, played his son, and that was the mm. twist that he's talking about his life, and he said, "And my dad sold me." Yep. Yeah, that's yeah. the guy. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So uh, there are two versions of that story. What's one the name again of that guy? Jim Turk or James Turk? Jim or James Turk Bean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one version of that story is that uh, it was this con that he and his son had going, that his uh, son was a strong swimmer. So he'd sell his son to a captain. Then his son would jump ship. Good grip. Swim back to shore. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of uh, Good to Bad and the, Good to Bad and the Ugly, where they're uh, hanging Clint Eastwood again and again, but they're shooting out the noose. Um, and then the story goes is that one day, you know, his son just, uh, a captain was onto them and went just far enough that the kid couldn't swim back to shore. The other version of that story, though, is that he just straight up got sick of his kid and sold him to a ship. <laughs> really don't. You could really take that one either way. Yep. Yeah. Both seem likely. Uh, yeah, either way, not a great dude. No. No, no, I, I'm I'm not a I'm not the biggest fan of of the crimps. So, uh, or the crimpers. What what is the correct crimp or crimpers? Either way. Um, Stuart Holbrook um, calls them crimpers in a lot of his writing, mm-hmm. and one of my um, one of the things that really, uh, God, because like you always want the like creepy, weird, fucked up things to be true. Okay, at least I do. So I was like, well, maybe Shanghai tunnels were a thing. Maybe there were some tunnels and people got like kidnapped through them. And maybe there was like one dungeon or something like that. But um, Stuart Holbrook never wrote about them. And he was writing from the 30s until like the 60s. And if anybody was going to, and he wrote tons about uh, Shanghai stories. And if anybody was going to write about like, 
a fucked up torture dungeon underneath Portland, Oregon. It was going to be him, but he didn't. We don't have anything about Shanghai tunnels until the sixties. Um, yeah, there was a, there was a, there's a goodly chunk of the book where you're explaining like there's, there's a lot of people who talked about it. There's a lot of historians and there's a lot of records and it's not hidden. It's, it's, it's not buried. It's, it's just not there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if you're a true believer, you could always use a lack of evidence. It's like evidence <laughs> of a conspiracy. It's like, oh man, they don't want you to know. They're keeping it out of everything. Yeah, I don't. I, I mean, it's it's a fun narrative to a really horrible component of a culture. Yeah, I can I can see why people would want to like push for it to like really be a thing. Uh, it's just funny that like people who have no connection to it are so adamant at, in this day and age. Yeah. I mean, I kind of get it. Like, you you want the good story to also be the true story. Um, yeah, I totally understand that. But I it think it rarely is. Yeah, yeah. Like I remember being so. Um, so disappointed when I also learned that Iron Maidens weren't real. The the torture devices? Yeah. Yeah. Are not real? So, okay. This is a total tangent. <laughs> but the Iron Maiden was probably probably like originally made in the 1700s or 1800s as kind of like this exaggerated idea of what medieval or Spanish Inquisition torture devices were like. Uh, but we don't have anything like it being used in the Middle Ages or Spanish Inquisition or anything. Um, so it was this kind of like sort of fanciful, like, look how, look how just like, you know, bloodthirsty and medieval like people were back in castle times type thing. Um, and I also know that it was a big draw in like waxworks, like mid 20th century when you were going to do like a, like, you know, you know, museum of horrors type thing. There are Uh, like, there are like three museums in Dover, England that without an Iron Maiden would not exist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But here's the fucked up thing. Uh, We do know that people have died in modern Iron Maidens. (laughs) No, it's I mean, it's kind of funny. Uh, apparently, one of Saddam Hussein's sons uh, built one to kill people with. I've heard <laughs> of it. Yeah, like so. It wasn't until the 21st century that somebody probably died in a real Iron Maiden. <laughs> that's yeah. that's amusing. I mean, not for the person who died in it because they no. probably didn't want to be in there. Amusing might not be the right word. <laughs> I mean, what do they care anymore? They're dead. Yeah, that's true. Maybe they're I mean, looking they, back and thinking, okay, that was hilarious. I hate that I'm dead. But... <laughs> ah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I feel like I'm a ray of fucking sunshine for your podcast. <laughs> I mean, I haven't laughed that hard. I haven't laughed that hard in a couple hours. So okay, that's great. <laughs> it would have been funnier if I could have said like several days, but I actually did like laugh, cry at something earlier because it was so uncontrollably funny to me. <laughs> But I mean, you're still number two for like the week, probably. You're good. Thank you. Good. I appreciate that. <laughs> you're hold, you're holding in there, Joe. Awesome. And, and all she ever sees is her husband and her pets. So that's true. Uh, 
um i have a question sure. um what was your favorite part of putting this book together? Like, is there a particular chapter that you're particularly fond of? Or do you have like a fun anecdote about while you were writing this and compiling everything? Yeah. So let me think my favorite part. Um, honestly, like Aaron, I know that you'll probably be, um, <laughs> able to speak to this as well writing yeah. looks really stressful <laughs> and it's really hard and i love it yeah but, and i want to do it again um oh you say that i'm gonna tell you right now your second book it's gonna be so much harder than your first oh my uh I, i'm sorry I, I hate to break it to you no the second book is the fucking hardest one you will ever write uh That's sophomore slump so I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'm experiencing that right now. I'm trying to work yeah! on something. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, not ready to talk about it yet, but yeah, I am experiencing that literally right now. Um, Cause you think like, Oh, I got this. And then yeah, right. every author I know, they're like, no, your second book's harder. I'm like, that can't be true. Uh, that yeah. can't, I've done it before. You, you were full of lies. Cut to me like a 10,000 words of the second book. I'm like, I just fuck this. This is stupid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think the, Okay. I want to talk about what I thought was the hardest part and then what I want to talk about uh, what I think is like one of the funnest parts. So the hardest part for me was um, coming to terms with what the publisher wanted because uh, when they asked me to do a book about Portland, they kind of danced around what they wanted. Like, my first pitch that when we were talking about my first pitch was like, Hey, how about a book about Portland in the 1970s? Because that was a really interesting time. We could talk about recycling. <laughs> we could talk about people protesting highways, light rail. And like, I really wanted to do that book. I really wanted to do the book about like the early environmental movement. And they were like, nah, uh, I was like, okay. I would have read your book about the light rail. Oh, thank you. I dig yeah. light rails though. No, so. It's legitimately <laughs> fascinating. Um, and the, this, or how we have a whole other town to protest to putting up, to put in the freeway. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the other thing, uh, and the, the next thing I said in our conversation, I was like, well, you know, another really interesting part about Portland is, uh, you know, Japanese, like Japanese American history, like Portland had a really big Japan town and there's a lot of like really interesting history there. And also the history of Japanese internment and what came after. That's really fascinating. They were like, you know, and I was like, okay, how about, about, how about gambling in old timey saloons? And they were like, there you go. I was like, oh, I see what you want now. Like you want a book that's like, hey, it's like the seedy side of Portland, but not like, really unpleasant you want whores and gangsters that's what you want gangsters and whores just the fun Uh, bad stuff it sells and so that was in a lot of ways like the hardest part because i was kicking myself and i was thinking like no i want to like be a serious enlightener of the people and like tell them the truth blah 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 but then when i like was at peace with that and i was like oh holy shit I can just like put a whole bunch of like weird stories in this thing. And that's the book. Like I can just do that. And that's what they want. Like that was my favorite part. You were like the stuff that I corner people at parties over. I can write into a book. Yeah. Yeah. That's the dream, (laughs) isn't it? And that leads into what is, um, I think the funniest ever Portland story. 
which All we right. talked about earlier. Okay. Oh, we're here. Well, I, th- I feel like we're here. Yeah. So the funniest ever Portland story, if people listen to my own podcast, the Weird History Podcast, they might have heard this already, but uh, it's from 1970. And 1970 was a difficult year for Portland, Oregon. So early in the year, in May, actually, there were a lot of protests in the parks blocks uh, around Portland State. Uh, you had uh, the United States doing a secret war against Cambodia, and you had just had the Kent State, su- uh, Kent State shootings. And you had a lot of student protesters who were like in this Les Miserables-style barricade in the park blocks, uh, protesting both of those things. It went on for days, and eventually it escalated to the point where the Portland police and these PSU student protesters ended up having this massive street fight that ended with, um, thir- I believe it was like about 30, 35 or so students and half a dozen cops being hospitalized. And <laughs> I'm a whole- laugh, but I'm already laughing. And a, a whole bunch of other students with like more minor injuries <clears throat> and like a shit ton of property damage. So that was a whole thing. And later on in August, uh, things looked to get even worse because in August, the American Legion was having its annual convention in Portland, Oregon. The American Legion, it's this pretty conservative organization of lots of old white guys who are kind of into war and they're, guest of honor at that convention in 1970 in Portland, Oregon was going to be Richard Nixon, who is going to talk about winning the war in Vietnam. So this is looking to be a repeat of the Portland state riots earlier in the year. There was an organization called the people's army jamboree. They were this protest organization uh, uh, that said, Hey, uh, we're looking at 25,000 legionnaires showing up in Portland, Oregon and Richard Nixon Guess what? We're going to put the word out up and down the West Coast. We will see you in the streets with 50,000 protesters. Um, Tom McCall, the governor at the time of Oregon, he's real nervous about this. He doesn't want an even bigger street fight in his state's biggest city uh, breaking out while the president is in town. And he thinks, how can I prevent this? How can I prevent legionnaires and protesters and everyone from just going at it. Uh, So he happens upon a creative solution, which is to throw a state-sponsored rock and roll festival. Uh, It was called Vortex One, a biodegradable festival of life. It happened in McIver Park, uh, just outside of Portland, Oregon. And the whole point of Vortex One is a distraction. Uh, Everybody who would have protested instead goes out to this free state-sponsored rock and roll festival. Now, there are no big name bands there. Uh, there were rumors that it was going to have the Grateful Dead, Carlos Santana, Jeff Snareplane. None of them showed up. It was just a bunch of like random local bands, but it was free, so people showed up. Like Art no- Alex's dad. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, we have no idea how many people showed up because there were no tickets. People just like let in whoever. And uh, Tom McCall, the governor, he said to the cops, uh, if you see anybody who looks like they're going to protest, give them a ride out to Vortex One. Take them out to the giant hippie party. And there were cops out there in McIver Park. And he said, hey, you know, 
whatever, uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, don't worry about it. Look the other way because we want them to be there. So for over a week, people just did whatever they want. Like got their freak on, did a bunch of stuff. There was one guy who apparently had his first acid trip on stage while performing at Vortex One, which sounds like an amazing and potentially terrifying life experience. Uh, I've met a few people who went there. Uh, one of them was a dude who was in the philosophy club at PSU. And apparently they had a uh, debate about whether or not to protest Nixon or to uh, go to the big rock and roll festival. They went to the big rock and roll festival because <laughs> sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Um, uh, but yeah, there was no big riot like people were anticipating. It was not a repeat of May of that year. Uh, everything went totally smoothly. And also Nixon canceled at the last minute. <laughs> because Tom McCall knew if you threw on a show and promised people could have drugs and get laid, yeah. we'll, we'll always rather get have drugs and get laid. Like always. Yeah. We'll always pick that. Well, yeah. and what year was this again? This was 1970. And here's the thing. Uh, Vortex One uh, didn't really inspire any uh, state-sponsored sequels. But there was um, a series of events called Rainbow Gatherings, which are oh, these kind of like fuck hippie wilderness events that grew out of that grew out of Vortex One. Like I this, grew up five miles away from a, a rainbow people <laughs> encampment in my hometown. Oh, really? To my knowledge, there are still some people that have a few cabins in the Ferdonier National Forest where I grew up. You have Vortex One to thank. For, Fuck the, for your the rainbow people oh because my god wow. they, they got come into town about there. once every two months for supplies um also there was supposed to be a vortex 2020 this year like <sighs> a state-sponsored sequel to that uh <gasps> guess what it got canceled by because of COVID 19 uh, what were they trying to uh distract from oh Fish nothing they just they just uh. thought it would be cool because it would have been the 50th anniversary <laughs> cable probably has the right of it <laughs> yeah <laughs> take, take your pick there are mm. lots of things i have such mixed feelings about that story because i know right it's like it's like it's i i don't necessarily approve of like distracting people from protesting what they believe in necessarily but also it's kind of brilliant they're like look like Woodstock was a once in a lifetime opportunity and we're going to do something that's basically that right over there. And it's free. Just, just be over there. It's kind of brilliant. Um, and I mean, I guess that guy did a lot of good stuff cause they named a park after him. Right. Yeah. He's, he's another one of those complicated organ figures because he was, <laughs> uh, he was also really into recycling and he was, uh, a big advocate of early anti-pollution laws. Um, also, big t- big time supporter of the Vietnam War. Uh, um, McCall was can't re- win. I mean, America didn't. <laughs> um, it was a tie. <laughs> oh. That's what I was always told growing up. It was a tie. Now, as an adult, I'm like, no, no, it wasn't. Got her asses kicked. <laughs> sure, for certain values of tie. Right, right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but you uh, got yeah. That's Korea. Oh, damn it. You're right. Never mind. We would have got China Beach, which is a much more depressing version of MASH. Mm-hmm. Well, we got anyway. to wrap it up here. Joe, where can people actually get your book? Since we've talked for a while about it, but we've never told anybody where they can actually get it. So the book is called Storied and Scandalous Portland, Oregon. Uh, if you want to get a bunch of juicy Portland like stories about old timey Portland, uh, go to Powell's 
go to powells.com and search for it. Um, I'm guessing that y'all are not big uh, Amazon fans. Um, no. They don't, they don't need the sales. So Powell's to, does though. So yeah, go to Powell's or to your favorite local bookstore. Like mm-hmm. if there is a uh, local books bookstore that's going to get like a, you know, Portland, Oregon local interest book, you know, ask them for it. Um, but yeah, go to Powell's.com. They have it. They can help you out. And we'll, um, we'll make sure to link to Powell's not anywhere else. Yeah, mm-hmm. please do that. Like we'll still have, if I could get on my soapbox for just a second, we will still have big national chains after this. There will still be Starbucks, but there might not be the coffee shop on the corner. So right. help out the coffee shop on the corner. Yeah. Or bookshop on the corner, as the case may be. Or the, co- or the, or comic, the comic shop. Book shop. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. Uh, Joe, thanks a lot, man. This was really fun having you on. We Thank you. This we got to have you on again. I really enjoyed things, it. Too. I've learned so much. That would be much. great. Uh, speaking of learning, I, I have an answer to an earlier question. Yes, foxes do rub their faces on people to to mark them with their scent. Oh yay! Oh man, that's way to bring it back in the first ten minutes. You know, if Disney's Robin Hood ever wants to, you know, hang out, that's cool. Yep, there you go. Yeah. Well, cool. Uh, well thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks a lot. Um, I think next week we might have. Uh, Rucka joining us again. We're going to double check, but don't hold us to that yet. But we're 85% confirmed for having Rucka back on the show next week. Chances are good. Yeah, we're going to try actually really good to basically have a guest every single week because what else are people doing? And it's good to have guests. (laughs) Um, Well, yeah, with that all being said, Joe, thank you again. Uh, I'm Aaron Duran. I'm Bainerita. And I'm Cable Hashitani. And we will talk to everybody next week. Watch out for snakes. I'm huge. Ready? Are you ready?